Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, Ukraine, and a see you in hell from, well, the United States. This week, or rather this weekend, saw the meeting of two of the most important parts of the conservative and right-wing movement in the United States. I'm talking about CPAC and AFPAC. CPAC stands for Conservative Political Action Committee, and AFPAC stands for America First Political Action Committee. AFPAC came after CPAC. Now, both of these organizations or events met last weekend in Orlando, Florida. They've been meeting in Florida for quite some time, uh, for the last couple of years. Now, CPAC is a standard conservative mainstream entity, you know, in the ecosystem of the right wing in the United States. AFPAC is a far-right response to CPAC, so I'll talk about them later. At this meeting of CPAC, like with most years' meetings, uh, there were mainstream figures on the right in the United States. And of course, who is the biggest figure on the right wing in the United States today? Well, it's Donald Trump. CPAC is generally a showcase for conservative mainstream political candidates, and this time it was no different. The central speaker at CPAC in an election year or leading up to an election year is often a good candidate for a potential Republican nominee for president or for a Republican nominee for another important office, like an important gubernatorial office or a Senate seat, something like that. Uh, This year, of course, it was Donald Trump who is clearly gearing up for a run against Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is in 2024. The second most important person to appear at CPEC is Donald Trump's only viable rival for leadership of the Republican Party. Uh, This is DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is trying to run on his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was frankly pretty awful, but conservatives seem to like it because it uses a bunch of statistical tomfoolery to prevent it from seeming like Florida had a horrible, horrible COVID outbreak, which they did. Most of Trump's speech was about bashing Biden and, uh, of course, doubling down on the claim that he lost the 2020 presidential election erroneously, uh, that Donald Trump should, in fact, be the president. Uh, Like I said, obviously, this is Trump trying to lay the groundwork for his 2024 run. Uh, He made some of his pretty, at this point, you know, standard jokes about, you know, I wonder who the presidential nominee is going to be, says Donald Trump, the obvious presidential nominee for the Republicans. The slogan for CPAC this year was not woke, awake, uh, which is just goofy, frankly. AFPAC is in some ways a lot goofier. Uh, They're just, you know, they come out of the brand of the right wing from online stuff. You know, a lot of their memes and slogans and mannerisms come from, from 4chan, straight from 4chan. But they are uh, significantly more terrifying than an online forum. Also, meeting in Orlando this year, uh, AFPAC, as ever, was run by Nick Fuentes, the founder of the organization and the host of a podcast called America First, which AFPAC takes the AF from. Uh, Fuentes and other members of the far right in the you know, United States spoke at this event. Uh, we're talking open white supremacists, open anti-Semites, but also people in the Republican Party came and spoke at this event, including 
Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, who are both in Congress, uh, also Wendy Rogers, an Arizona state senator, who has been getting a lot of press recently for her just like brazen anti-Semitism. She, she just like says fascist Nazi stuff. She just like says it out loud in Congress. Joe Arpaio was there. Also, uh, a man named Torba, who is the CEO of Gab, which is the preferred right-wing messaging social media service today, uh, after a lot of them have been banned from Twitter and YouTube. Gavin McGinnis was also there, the founder of the Proud Boys, you know, the leading fascist paramilitary organization in the United States. AFPAC is, you know, it brands itself as being the actually right-wing CPAC. They berate CPAC, they insult other supposed conservatives in their minds, you know, these people aren't actually conservatives. Um, they say that CPAC is actually woke, uh, that they are pro-Jew. You know, they say they say that CPAC is not sufficiently anti-Semitic. Uh, they say that CPAC is anti-white and anti-Christian. Essentially, their position is that the Republicans are insufficiently right-wing for their taste. The emergence of AFPAC and its increasing hold in the Republican mainstream, you know, being able to get actual elected officials there is an indicator of realignment in the United States Republican Party. Further news in the United States is that the trucker convoy, which was supposed to be a repeat of the Canadian Freedom Convoy, was a complete failure. Uh, they had no steam left when uh, it turned out that uh, literally no trucks arrived in Washington, D.C. on their trip from California. They left California last week, but uh, only had five trucks left in the convoy by the time they reached Las Vegas. Uh, so it just petered out. It didn't work at all. Three have pled guilty to a terrorism plot in the Midwest, uh, in the Midwest of the United States. They were planning on disrupting the power system and were open white supremacists. Uh, their plan was found out and foiled by the FBI. Finally, with normal news in the United States, uh, we now know that a lot of the documents that Trump took to Mar-a-Lago, his private residence in Florida, were um, not just like documents that he wasn't allowed to remove from the White House. They were documents that were so sensitive in terms of national security and national secrets that they cannot even be legally described in the press. Like, we're not allowed to know what the documents even are because they're so secretive. And this is exactly what the president and the former president took to his private residence in Florida. Now, this is the sort of thing that he could actually conceivably face some sort of prosecution for. Uh, so we're going to have to stay tuned on that. Now, of course, the biggest news story in the world this week is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am not a specialist in Eastern Europe, nor am I a specialist in, you know, criminology, the supposed Western study of how, you know, the, the inner workings of the Russian government function. And as such, I don't claim to be the expert expert on this stuff. For that, you should seek out other sources, people who actually study these things. What I can talk about, though, is some of the right-wing aspects of this conflict. Now, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia and the perpetrator of this invasion, uh, justified his actions, justified the behavior of the Russian state by saying that their invasion is to, quote, denazify Ukraine. Uh, this is a blatant propagandistic lie, of course. He's talking out his ass here. 
Uh, his claim is supposedly, in Russian propaganda, justified by the supposed genocide of Russian ethnic minorities in the far eastern part of the country. We're talking about the Donbas region that you might have heard of in um, news coverage of the invasion. The Donbas region and other surrounding parts of Ukraine were held before Russia's invasion by pro-Russia rebels, and they continue to be held by those rebels after the invasion. Now, of course, in one sense, Putin's use of, you know, denazification as a supposed justification for invading a sovereign state is just a generic one. You know, he's just saying, well, people think Nazis are bad, and Russians especially think and know Nazis are bad because of the horrible, horrible things that Nazis did to Russia and Russians during World War II. Uh, so telling people that they're Nazis, you know, that's just like a good generic justification. Maybe some people will read that and just let it go. Uh, this is the use of Nazis and fascism just as a generic pejorative. Now, of course, in Western commentary about this, uh, we've seen exactly the same thing. People saying like, oh, well, Putin is using the idea of Nazism to justify invading Ukraine. It's prob probably it's him that's really the Nazi. Um, but as a scholar of fascism and as a student of history, I'm begging you to please pay close attention to what fascism is what it means. Uh, if you'd like a refresher, check out my special episode, What is Fascism, uh, in this very podcast. Remember that fascism isn't just violence. It's not just bad. Uh, a dic any dictator is not just a fascist. Fascists believe in violence as a revolutionary tool for a revolutionary political end. They engage in domestic partisan violence and international partisan violence in the interest of remaking the world. That's not what Putin is doing here. He's just a warmonger who's trying to take over a neighboring country. Of course, in doing so, he is perpetrating horrible crimes against humanity, war crimes uh, that I sincerely hope he will face justice for. However, and this is a very interesting thorny question, like all lies, there is a kernel of truth in Putin's claim that Ukraine could be denazified. And a kernel, I mean. It's a small kernel, but there's something there. And this is about the Azov movement. Now, the Azov movement, is it takes its name from a sea off of the Black Sea that borders Ukraine. Uh, the Azov movement is a far-right political and paramilitary group in Ukraine that grew up uh, during the previous invasion of Ukraine by Russia, the invasion of the Crimea. And uh, as a paramilitary organization of Ukrainians against these pro-Russian separatists in the far eastern parts of Ukraine. The Azov Battalion is itself very much affiliated with some pro-Nazi, pro-fascist shit. They use Nazi iconography, uh, they use Nazi symbols, uh, some of them have been seen doing the fascist salute, the Roman salute from the Italian fascist party. They are openly anti-Semitic, they are openly white supremacist. They are openly anti-Muslim. Uh, this is manifested most disgustingly in the current Russian invasion of Ukraine when the Azov Battalion, having heard that Russia was deploying some Muslim troops of Russia, uh, the Azov Battalion posted a bunch of stuff on their social media uh, showing themselves uh, dipping their bullets in lard uh, as a means of psychological warfare uh, to try to humiliate Muslim opponents. Um, this kind of racist shit is exactly what the Azov Battalion does. They are a showy neo-Nazi movement. Uh, 
but they are not just a neo-Nazi movement like the ones that are in the United States. They're very politically active. Members and former affiliates of the movement are in the Russian parliament. Uh, they hold local government seats. And also the Azov movement is a it's a part of the Ukrainian military. They are technically a division of the Ukrainian National Guard. Uh, and in their activity as such, they have been involved in some terrible atrocities. They have tortured people. Uh, they have looted civilian homes. Um, and this is on top of their use of just like open neo-Nazi symbology. Obviously, the presence of such a group is not a justification for the war that Putin has uh, engaged in in Ukraine. The crimes and Nazism or fascism of groups like this is it doesn't even begin to justify or it couldn't possibly justify the atrocities that Putin and the Russian military are perpetrating. It is, of course, also true that elements of the Russian far right have been deeply involved in the pro-Russian separatists in the eastern regions of Ukraine and that these people are connected to equally atrocious types of ideologies, a lot of them sort of post-imperialist, like like Russian restorationist stuff, um, uh, affiliates of, or former affiliates of the former uh, nationalist Bolshevik party, which was a neo-Nazi party in Russia shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union. I mention these things because it's important to know exactly where Putin's propaganda comes from. It doesn't come from nowhere. And to say, to remind everyone that collaboration with fascists, even when it seems expedient in the moment, is never a good idea. Going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are returning to the United States to William F. Buckley Jr., the famous U.S. conservative thinker and propagandist. Buckley was born in the United States in 1925 in New York City. Uh, but his family quickly moved all around the world because his uh, father was a wealthy oil tycoon. He first moved to Mexico City and then France, uh, which meant that English was actually his third language after Spanish and French. Uh, his family was, like I said, very wealthy, and his schooling was very elite, at-home tutors and an elite Jesuit education when he attended school. This uh, cemented his serious Catholicism, a faith that he held very deeply all his life. Uh, he was opposed to the changes brought by the Second Vatican Council, which I can't help but mention because uh, that's the foundation of my dissertation. His higher education career began at UNAM, the leading university in Mexico, and finished at Yale. Uh, after Yale, he joined the CIA for a while, uh, but then returned to the United States to become a publisher and author, which he remained until his death. Uh, after he returned to the United States in the 1950s, he engaged in his most famous and enduring endeavor, uh, founding the National Review, uh, which was and remains the centerpiece of conservative print legacy media type things in the United States. Uh, it was a fusionist organization, uh, which means that they supported a uniting conservatives and libertarians, uh, which was a mainstay of the right wing, the mainstream right wing in the United States in the mid to late 20th century. The National Review remains one of the most important conservative publications in the United States today. Uh, Buckley's goal with the National Review and also with uh, his other appearances and publications uh, was to unite and sanitize conservatives 
which means that he tried to distance mainstream conservatives from people like Ayn Rand, from the John Birch Society, from George Wallace, from other like openly racist segregationists, uh, although Buckley himself was not opposed to segregation. What this means is that Buckley and the National Review are like what made what you probably think of when you think about conservatives, um, or at least what conservatives want you to think of uh, when you think about conservatives. Buckley remained active in the world of right-wing propaganda and thinking until his death. Uh, so he was very active throughout the 20th century, appearing on television very regularly, debating leftists and other members of the conservative movement, and also engaged in advising conservative presidents of the United States. You know, we're talking Nixon and Reagan especially, uh, but also George W. Bush. Buckley continued his career as a propagandist, like I said, until his death, uh, February 27th, 2008, uh, when he died at home of a heart attack in his study. So, William F. Buckley Jr., we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Tell friends, family, and comrades about it. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word and spelled out. You can also get in touch with me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. Same thing, all one word, all spelled out. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right or uh, fascism 15. All right, I will talk to you next week. Bye.